Well, children, I want you to grab your children's bulletin if you got one, and I want you to look at it for just a minute. You'll notice that the focal passage tonight is um, not a part of the bulletin. Your bulletin says um, Psalm 51, and that's because apparently the story this week, though not as unfamily-friendly last week uh, as the one last week, um, it still apparently remains one that shouldn't be in a children's bulletin, I guess. We couldn't find one anywhere. Um, so, Pastor Aaron chose Psalm 51 because that was the passage that we read for our confession of sin. Um, but that's not why I ask you to grab it. I want you to look at it because on the front page you'll notice that there are two pictures and um, they look, if you look, if you just glance at them, they look the same. But apparently there are differences because the instructions are to circle the six differences that, that are found in the, second, the bottom picture uh, than the first, or the ones that are different than the second picture. Um, your job is to find them and circle them. And if, you've, if you haven't done that already, don't do it right now. Um, but if you have already done it that way, that's okay. Um, and the reason I bring this up is because what I'm going to do in, in these first couple of minutes is I'm going to, we're going to pretend that the passages from Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20, and Genesis chapter 20 are two pictures. And then I'm going to, I'm going to verbally circle the differences. Um, and there aren't just six, there are 15, okay? So I want you to listen to and, and imagine that I'm drawing these circles around these pictures. In chapter 12, Abram was sent to Egypt, but in chapter 20, Abraham is sent, uh, or, or goes, not was sent, he goes to Egypt, and in chapter 20, Abraham goes to Gerar. In chapter 12, uh, Abram went to Egypt because of a famine, but in chapter 20, Abraham goes to Gerar for a reason we don't know. In chapter 12, he tells Sarah to lie as they enter into Egypt. In chapter 20, uh, he makes it sound like that this, this lying this, this has been a policy that he established back when they were in Ur. In chapter 12, Sarah was 65. In chapter 20, she's 90. In chapter 12, she's described as being very beautiful, but in chapter 20, she's not described at all. In chapter 12, we're not told about her purity, but in chapter 20, we're told that her purity is maintained. In chapter 12, Pharaoh and his household were afflicted with some type of plague or plagues. In chapter 20, Abimelech and the women in the household are afflicted with some type of infertility. In chapter 12, Pharaoh did not consult his servants. In chapter 20, Abimelech does. In chapter 12, Pharaoh asks, um, what have you done to me? Abimelech asks, what have you done to us? In chapter 12, Abraham uh, remains silent when asked the question from Pharaoh, but in chapter 20, he answers Abimelech. Uh, in chapter 12, Abram, uh, Abra, Ab Abram was sent away. In chapter 20, Abraham is offered land nearby. In chapter 12, Pharaoh gives Abraham a bunch of stuff. In chapter 20, Abimelech gives Abraham, uh, Abraham a bunch of stuff and some money. In chapter 12, he was given the stuff by Pharaoh before he knew, or before uh, he knew that Sarah was Abraham's wife. In chapter 20, he's given all the stuff and the money after he knows. Uh, Abimelech knows. Um, 
chapter 12, Abraham was given the stuff before Sarah was released. In chapter 20, he's given all the stuff after she's released. And then the 15th is in chapter 12, Abraham does not, or Abram does not intercede on behalf of Egypt, but he does intercede for Gerar. Now, why start there? Well, listen to this quote in the commentary from Derek Kidner. He wrote this. Critical scholars reckon the story of Genesis 20, a duplicate of Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20, ultimately on the ground that a man does not repeat a lapse of this kind. Now, I'm not sure who these so-called scholars are, uh, but while they may call each other distinguished academics... They obviously didn't look at the passages closely enough. And secondly, they aren't students of human nature and behavior. These stories are similar. And we're going to see that in just a minute. But they, there are enough differences to tell us that they're not duplicates. And we'll also see that no one is above repeating we're experiencing lapses of this kind. No one is above repeating or experiencing lapses in sin. We're going to see that Abraham and we struggle with besetting sins. And our outline has four points. We're going to look first at how Abraham failed Sarah. Then we'll see how God comes to Abimelech. And then we'll see how Abimelech calls to Abraham. And then finally, we'll see how Abraham prays to God. Children, your words are in the normal place in, in the other bulletin if you want to listen for those tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Father, give us ears to hear and prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word. Please fill me with your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace. I ask that you would attend to me as I do this work that you've called me to do, and that you would use me as you see fit, for Christ's sake and for the sake of his church. Amen. Well, Moses says that Abraham leaves Mamre, and he travels south. And when he arrives in a place called Gerar, the king, who is referred to as Abimelech, claims Sarah for his royal harem. And he did so for a couple of reasons. One, it was his customary right at the time to claim any unmarried woman and her dowry for his own if she just happened to pass through his territory. Now, I know that sounds weird, but that's how it was. But the second reason is, is because Abraham failed Sarah. And I should say Abraham failed Sarah again. Because we know this is the second time that he followed his she's my sister plan. And unfortunately, Abraham was once again at this low point of this roller coaster life, of his, of his life of faith that was up and down and ebbed and flowed. And he was repeating the same bad mistake that he had made before that we thought maybe he had learned from when he was in Egypt. He once again followed his fear or allowed his fear and allowed his lack of faith to drive the decisions that he was making. 
He once again neglected his wife's safety, and he failed to protect her vulnerability for the sake of his own self-preservation. He also once again put the promised seed in jeopardy. And he did so despite everything that had occurred and all the experiences that he had been through. He once again dismissed the fact that God had promised to protect him. And he apparently had forgotten everything that had happened between him and the three Babylonian kings. God had, had made it possible and led him to victory over those Babylonian kings despite the fact that their armies were much larger. He had forgotten also that Sarah was a gift and that she should have been treasured by him and protected and cared for above all else. To, be, to, to borrow Calvin's words from his commentary that I read last week on chapter 19, Abraham should have endured a thousand deaths rather than have resorted to such a measure. And while this Repetition gives the so-called scholars reasons to believe that this is simply a duplicate story. It really, what it really does is it actually gives us reason to pause. It gives us, it gives us reason to consider the fact that no one is above doing the same thing and experiencing lapses in sin. You see, Abraham may be in the hall of faith, but he was also a man that fell short of the glory of God. Abraham was a man just like the rest of us. We're all just like him. We're like him in that we, we waffle back and forth between faith and foolishness. One day our faith shines and then the next day, our flaws are on full display for all to see. One day, our faith is strong, and the next, we're overcome with failure. All of us, like Abraham, wrestle with unbelief and ongoing sin. We're all seeking to lay aside the sins, those besetting sins that the author of Hebrews tells us cling to us. There are areas in our lives in which we repeatedly fail to trust the Lord. We seek to handle things in our own way and in our own time. We repeatedly fail to trust His Word. We repeatedly seek to preserve our own lives, no matter what the cost might be to someone else. We repeatedly have the same sinful thoughts and the same sinful desires and and we say the same sinful things, and we do the same sinful deeds. These are areas in our lives in which we tell ourselves, I'm, I'm not going to think that way again. I'm not going to feel that way again. I'm never going to say that again. I am, I'm never going to do that again. And no matter how sincere we may be at the time we find ourselves thinking, feeling and saying and doing the same things again and again and again. And that's because in the words of John Currid, each of us have deeply worn channels of a corrupt nature. 
besetting sins that refuse to let us go. And these sins, he says, come in cycles. They revisit us time and time again. Similar situations lead us to act in a similar vein. And each time we do, no matter what the sin might be, we ask, like Paul in Romans 7, why? Why do I keep doing these things that I shouldn't do and I don't want to do? And why don't I do the things that I should do? Why don't I do the things that I want to do? And of course, the answer is the same for us as it was for Paul. There is a, a battle, there's a war going on within us between the Spirit and the flesh. But thanks be to God that in the, midst of the, in the midst of it all, He's at work. He continues to be at work. He is working for us, and He's working within us. Listen to the rest of this quote from John Currit. He said, but as in the case of Abraham, God continues to bring the situations upon us so that we should see our sin, and that we should turn to Him, and that we should trust Him and realize He will protect us. Such repetitive cycles highlight our besetting sins, but they also point to a solution, which is complete trust and faith in God. You see, the solution to our besetting sins, no matter what it may be, is to repent and to flee to God. We need to agree with God that what we've thought and what we've felt and what we've said and what we've done is offensive to Him. And we should seek forgiveness in the person of the Lord Jesus. And we need to ask the Lord to help us mortify that sin. We need to ask Him to help us recognize those those deeply worn channels. We need to ask Him to help us recognize the triggers and the patterns associated with the sin that we're battling with. We need to ask Him to help us to remember the consequences of the sin and and where it will lead. We need to ask Him to to help us realize that He is with us and He is is protecting us and He has provided us a way of, of escape and a better choice that not only should be made, but can be made because of the death of of Christ. He has released us from the power and the bondage of our sin. And then, of course, we need to respond in faith. Or we repent and we flee to Christ. Well, in verse 3, God comes to Abimelech, and He comes to him in a dream. And He comes to do, God comes to do what Abraham failed to do, right? He comes to protect Abraham's wife, He comes to protect Sarah and the seed that was probably already within her. And of course, He comes to protect His own reputation as a promise keeper and a promise maker, a promise maker and a promise keeper. And He doesn't mince words. You heard John when he read it, he said, you're a dead man. He says, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken. She, she's a man's wife. And Abimelech doesn't hesitate. He immediately responds. And, and his response not only reveals his reverent fear, but it also began with the same question that Abraham asked back in verse 23 of chapter 18. 
He said, will you kill an innocent people? I may have taken her, but I had no idea she was married. Both of them told me that she was her brother. Had I known, I never would have taken her in, into my home. Had I known, I would have, I, I, well, I, I've acted with integrity. I mean, I took her in, but I, I acted with integrity. I've been innocent. I haven't touched her. I haven't caused her to violate her marriage vows. I'm innocent in this particular situation. And notice what God, God says. He says, yes, I know. I know. You, you've, you haven't touched her, and I'm sure you wouldn't have taken her if, if they had been honest with you. But had I not intervened, you would have not only sinned against Abraham, you would have sinned against me. He says, so here's the deal. You go and give Sarah back to Abraham. And if you, if, if you give her back, right, he has a special relationship with me. So if you give, you give her back, he's going to pray for you. He's going to bless you by praying for you and interceding for you. And when he prays for you and intercedes for you, I'm going to hear him and I'm going to bless you and you're going to remain alive. But if you don't give her back, you're a dead man. You and, and the others with you. And, and Abimelech, again, exhibits this reverential fear that, fear, fear that he has, and he puts it on display by getting up in the morning after the dream, and he goes and tells his servants of everything that happened, and then they do the appropriate thing, and, and they all join in, in the fearing, and, uh, fearing of the Lord. Now, the key phrase, though, in the midst of this is the phrase, it was, I who kept you from sinning, I did not let you touch her. And it's a key phrase for three reasons. One, Sarah's about to have Isaac. And we're going to see that next week. And, and keeping him from touching her was vitally important to make sure there was no mistake that the child was Abraham's. Isaac was the promised seed. But if Abimelech had been intimate with Sarah, there would have been all kinds of questions surrounding Isaac. This was reinforced when Abimelech not only gave Abraham the, the oxen and the sheep and the servants and the lamb, but he also gave him a thousand pieces of silver. And that silver was, Abimelech said it was specifically for the purpose of vindicating Sarah because it was a sign of her innocence in the eyes of everyone that was around. In other words, the money was a pledge. I'm giving you this money. I'm, this is a pledge to tell you I have not touched her. This is a money. It's a pledge. It says she has not violated her marriage vows. This is money. and it's, it's a pledge that would later be used it's to validate the fact that Isaac is not illegitimate, but he's the legitimate son of Abraham. The second reason it's the key phrase is because it points to the truth that God was sovereignly at work in the midst of the entire situation. Things may have appeared to be chaotic. The promise may have seemed to be in jeopardy. But God had everything under control. There was absolutely nothing that was going to thwart His promise. 
despite Abraham's forsaking of the promises that God had made, despite his faithlessness, despite his going his own way, and despite taking matters into his own hands, and despite his gross negligence when it came to his wife and his complete lack of love and protection of her, despite his contradictory actions that flew in the face of God and His promises, God remained faithful. God did not waver, though Abraham did. God had remained true to His promises. Brothers and sisters, God's plan and promises will come about. He will keep His word, despite us. Our unfaithfulness and our sins cannot thwart His plan for our lives. Therefore, He can and should be trusted. And the third reason it's the key phrase is because it reminds us that we should ever, forever be thankful for God's grace that restrains us and keeps us from sinning more than we do. God acknowledged Abimelech's integrity and innocence, but he also acknowledged that he himself was ultimately the cause of that integrity and innocence. Abimelech may have done the right thing, but he only did what was right because God was graciously at work on his behalf. Children, this is why your parents and we here at the church why we have all been taught by Jesus to pray and to ask the Lord not to lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. This is the reason Paul in Philippians said that we are responsible to work out our salvation, but that that is only possible because He is working in us. This is why the writer of Hebrews concludes his wonderful letter that we studied a couple of years ago with a benediction that says it is God who equips us to do His, His will that pleases Him. This is why Jude concludes his letter with a doxology in which he says He is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Brothers and sisters, we should continually, continually thank God for His grace that protects us. We should continually pray that He would maintain the integrity of our hearts and minds, and that He would keep our hands innocent in the day-to-day. We should pray to Him continually to keep us from sinning against Him. We should pray continuously for Him to give us confidence in and assurance of His faithfulness. May we always give credit where credit is due and thank the Lord for His restraining grace. Acknowledge that grace day, not only today, but every day. Well, not surprisingly, in verse 9, we read that Abimelech called Abraham, as we all would have done. Right? Having been called on the carpet by God, where are we going to go? 
And Abimelech says what we all would have said. What in the world have you done? What have I done to you? What have we done to you that you've put us in the crosshairs of God? We haven't, I haven't done anything to sin against you. We haven't done anything to sin against you. You've sinned against me. You've sinned against us. And what happens is, for the second time, a pagan ruler was used to call Abraham out for his moral failure and his forsaking God's promise that he would be a blessing to the nations. And of course, Abraham didn't have a justifiable reason at all to stand on. He didn't have a leg to stand on. And it was all about fear. It was all about his faithlessness. And so he had to resort to making up excuses. First, he blames Abimelech. He blamed Abimelech in what he assumed to be a what he thought would be a lack of fear on Abimelech's part, which led him to his own fear, particularly of suffering. Second, he played the technicality game, and he attempted to rationalize his half-truth and turn it into something other than a complete lie. And then thirdly, he had the audacity to blame God and sounded much like Adam did in the garden, which is never a good path to go down. And of course, we read these excuses and we, and we think, how could he? Right? And we begin to point fingers. Abraham, how silly. But rather than point fingers, we need to admit that his excuses give us a few things to identify with and a few things to consider. First, how often do we, like Abraham, allow our fear of suffering to overcome our hatred of sin? If we were to assess our fears, would our fear of suffering, would it be greater than our fear of sin? And if so, what what are the potential consequences of that? Are there times when we, like Abraham, choose our sin in order to avoid suffering? When the truth of the matter is the end of avoidance and reduction of suffering doesn't justify the means of sin, ever. Secondly, we need to recognize and and acknowledge that half-truths are always complete lies. And playing the technicality game is being less than forthright. At some point, we need to come to the place of understanding that our justification and our rationalization of our sinful behavior is nothing more than an attempt to be seen in a better light, which is nothing more than deception. And so all that we've done is we've just added another lie to a lie. And then finally, there's blame shifting. Blame shifting, when, whether on others or onto God, is nothing more than a defense mechanism. And it's a mechanism that deflects attention away from ourselves and hinders us from taking the responsibility we need to take for our own actions that is necessary as a part of repentance. Yes, there are times, absolutely, there are times when people are acted upon And they are victims and do not share in the blame of particular situations. Absolutely. 
but it is more common for there to be enough blame to go around. Oh, that we would become a people that look to ourselves first rather than look to others. That we would be a people that would own what is ours before attempting to identify the blame in others. Again, children, this is why Jesus taught us to pray and ask God to forgive us our debts. We need to own our sin, and we need to seek forgiveness, because Christ has paid our debt, and there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, so we have nothing to fear. He desires to forgive us more than we desire to repent. And that brings us to our last point. After Abimelech gave Abraham all the stuff and all the money, verse 17 says that Abraham prayed to God. And how did God respond? He responded by healing Abimelech and his wife and and, and his slaves, and he opened the wombs. He opened their wombs so that they could have children. And they're so... So much in these final couple verses, I want to move quickly in order to to keep my word from earlier this week. Who do, or, or what do we see here? First, we see God's sovereignty again at work. He's the one who opens and closes wombs. He's the giver of life. And what we also see is a little bit of irony in that he he uses the one who had been praying for his, his wife for so long to conceive and to give birth as the one who would open the wombs of others. Right? It was through Abraham's prayers that, the God, that God chose to work. And in the words of Richard Belcher, he said, this is a reminder to Abraham as to who is in charge and gives him hope that God will be faithful to his promise of an heir to be born to him through Sarah. Secondly, we see the promise God made to protect Abraham and to bless those who bless him. We see that fulfilled. We also see the promise God made to Abraham about uh, bless, uh, promising him that he would be a, a blessing to the nations. We see that fulfilled. It wasn't fulfilled initially, but it was eventually. And then finally, like the previous two weeks, we see the importance of the blessing and the blessing of intercessory prayer through which God works and uses to be an effectual means by which He brings about His will. Beloved, chapter 20 reminds us that Abraham, again, who is a member of the Hall of Faith, was not inherently righteous. He was a sinner who had been declared righteous. God saw his faith, weak though it was, and counted it to him as righteousness. And his faith, like I said when we began, it ebbed and flowed, up and down. But fortunately for him, his righteousness was not the result of the quality of his faith, but it was the result of the object of his faith. And the same is true for us tonight.
You and I all are called to strive to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We are to lay aside that sin that so easily entangles us, and we're to run the race that's set before us. But we who are spiritual offspring of our father Abraham are going to stumble, we're going to trip, we're going to fall along the way just like he did. And left to ourselves, we would make a mess of everything. We would make a mess of our own lives. We would make a mess of the lives of people around us, those close to us and those we don't even know. But fortunately, we are not left to ourselves. The Lord has promised to complete the work He has begun in us. Our sanctification is His will for us. His goal is to conform us into the image of Christ. We are to flee temptation. And He has offered, He has offered us, given us, provided for us a way of escape. And what is that way of escape? Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in the one to whom Abraham pointed as a prophet and intercessor. Our hope is in Abraham's seed, which is also the seed of the woman that God promised and protected. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of, Son of God, Savior of sinners, who was the only one who never faltered and was always faithful. And He is our hope because His record of perfect faithfulness has been credited to us. He has not left us to ourselves. He is the way. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the Word with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. For your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray. Amen.